The Say Something Podcast is brought to you by a moment with Morris.com and BlackBlueprints.com. That's BlackBlueprints with a Z.com. I'm Jermaine Morris here with one and only Mr. Barry Axius. Yes, sir. We are back with the newest episode of the Say Something Podcast. Say something, say something, say something. That's what we always talk about what's happening in the life out here in the traffic out here in these streets. In these cool, cool, cool streets. Cold streets, but it's been 100 plus out here in, in Cali. Man. <laughs> 180 degrees out here in these streets. Satan degrees. Uh, we're bringing you episode number 84. Booyah. And as always, we like to highlight somebody who's done it for the culture. <laughs> A moment of black excellence with Jermaine Morris. And we always stress the importance and the significance of uh, our own narrative and highlighting our own and championing our own and telling our own stories. Well, uh, this individual, uh, a, a queen of the people, yeah, and she's still with us. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not a dead body that you scraped up from the archives? Oh, damn. Okay. A Philly native um, and accredited. She was uh, got her degree from Stanford, but her, her she was involved in some of the most uh, poignant shows that you could say over the culture of the last few decades. Uh, she was she made her major shift after being inspired by the Terry McMillan uh, story. Okay. You remember Terry McMillan from the '90s? She yes, was sir. the author. Well, she did the book, which turned into the movie uh, "Waiting to Exhale." Mm-hmm. And so she was inspired by that movie because she liked the idea of the story of just four black women of living semi different lives, but just the interactions and and it reminded her of some of her own life, her college experiences. So she took that idea and she turned it into a a TV show, which was kind of loosely based around like her college experience. She was involved in programs, everything from like uh, assistant to writing, to creating, to all that from shows like A Different World to Half and Half to Hanging with Mr. Cooper to uh, Blackish, The Wayans Brother, even creating the Netflix show uh, Dear White People. Mm. Uh, she took the show, like I said, the idea from her friends and her college experience, and she created the show Living Single. Okay. And so this is somebody who's been involved in in really, really just expressing our stories from, from, from more of our point of view that weren't really uh, shown on TV at the time. Like, she's just she was the first black woman to develop her own primetime series. Dope. So we give credit to some of those doing it now, but we have to respect those who started doing it then. She got award, you know, NAACP Image Award, BET Awards, all that stuff from outstanding comedy series, outstanding producer. Uh, shout out and a little love one time to Yvette Lee Bowser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, she was. Uh, if you go through the '90s. Like uh, she was, she was really had her stamp on a Man. lot of lot of shows. Living single was my show. Who's your, who who's who's who spoke to you? <laughs> who, who, who spoke to you? There was Man. there was a Khadija. There was a Khadija who was a Queen Latifah. Uh, Sinclair. That was the kind of um, little kind of out there one. Yeah, she, she that was, was a Kim Coles. Uh, there was uh, Kim Fields, yeah, Kim Regine, Fields. and then there was uh, Kim Fields. I got it. Max, Kim, the, the Kim, lawyer. Kim Fields was what she was mine. Uh, I've had a Kim, crush on Kim Fields ever since the Facts of Life jump off. You get what I'm saying? So <laughs> Little tootie. Dang that. Those were some good times for some good shows. You had Martin as well. <laughs> um, you know, you still had uh, Living Color. Yeah, I still believe was still on and. Um, 
I want to say that it was some great comedy. You know, just looking at some of the older episodes, right? The rewind, as we like to call it. And yeah. looking at it now, you just saddened because you don't get that kind of TV. And the thing about it, all those great actors and actresses became to be very successful outside of just the um, the shows that were particularly on. And they remained to be iconic. You know? Yeah, they became like family. You know, if you look at, you know, Martin, everybody who's on the Martin show, you know, we when Tommy died, you know, a lot of us felt that. And, and you see, and Cole is always going to be Cole. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, whatever he, Carl uh, Payne yeah. is his name, but whatever he does, he's going to be Cole. Yeah. Tisha and uh, Tashina and Tisha Campbell. That, that that's Pam. Yeah, and Martin's coming back from what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was some kind of reboot. I know he's going on tour next year. He's he to- uh, hosting any event. Uh, there was actually something though that staying on that same subject. Uh, Amanda Seals, if you're familiar with her. Yeah. Uh, and so she does this show that she tours. It's called Smart, Funny, and Black. Mm. If it ever comes to your city, I've heard nothing but rave reviews. I think it's coming. I think it's going to close out the tour in L.A. If that's the case, I might even take a trip down there, where it, uh, it just covers pop culture, music, all this sort of stuff. And she, there was a a, a part where they had a, a question, just just you know, sidebar. We just kind of talking a little bit. It said, "Which couple do you think would have made it like today in 2019? That from back then <laughs> till right now, social media days, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so take from when the show's on the air, yeah, to who would still be together today. And the question was, Martin and Gina, would they still be together, or Dwayne and Whitley? Because because them was you know, Dwayne and Whitley. No, no, Martin and Gina. I think Martin and Gina. I'd say Martin and Gina." You think Martin, Martin, Martin yeah, and Gina would have made it? I think they would have made it. Because they've gone through so many different tidal waves within, right? you got to remember that was a moment when um, the whole marriage thing, and yeah. motherfuckers had cold feet and things of that nature. Um, that's more than Dwayne interrupting the wedding when Willie's going to marry old dude. See, that's and the he same thing. Uh, uh, Gina never was about to marry anybody. You know what I mean? That That's some other type of stuff. You yeah. Know? You about to go sit there and say, "Hey, I'm gotta jump in and be the wedding crasher." That's a whole power move too. That, like I would never do it. See this thing growing up, Dwayne Wayne spoke to me. Because you was the Dwayne Wayne guy. Like he was, he was somebody that like. Because I think, and I think that's what's important too when we talk about telling our stories is, is that we're not all one type. Not at all. Like we're not even just, though they're trying to put us as one type. Of yeah, like there were so many different looks and reflections of us as a people that you could be a little more Dwayne versus Ron Johnson. Yep. You could be a little more Martin as opposed to Theo. Yep. You could be a little more. You know, you could see yourself in all these different, you know, different different lenses and different shows, which yes. I. There's too much machoism now. There's just too much macho now. But go ahead. Yeah, and so which I thought was cool to me, like uh, like growing up, like I said, Dwayne Wade. No one was Dwayne Wayne speaking to me of the fact that he was somebody who was, you know, he, he was he was a brainy dude. He was he was little, you know. He had his little moments of being social and stuff, yeah. but he was really more kind of reserved. He was one of the few cases where the nice guy got the girl. Yeah. You know, because he got played by Denise Hustable. Mm. Like he was just, you know. <laughs> he was going hard to paint for her, and she just kept shining him. She kept he kept getting shouldered off, and then you know he actually ended up with the girl that that, that worked. That was uh, something that I appreciated. But I just enjoyed that time period to where we can just turn on the TV and just see that we're not all. Everybody's not trying to be a dope boy. No. Everybody's not trying to make it to the league. 
Nah. Everybody's not trying to, you know, be the man on canvas. There's there's dudes who are trying to be engineers. And there was also black excellence in such a way um, that it defined us from saying, here's our culture. And we appreciate and value, value our culture where we embrace it in such a way that we made it look magnificent. Right yeah. now, in this sense, we're so ingrained into looking at other people's cultures and saying, well, I want in on there. And the thing about it, what cra- cracks me up, right? Yeah. We talk about, you know, how it looked and what it looked like when we talk about black excellence, those shows, because they were very rare and for it to be that raw. So it spoke to us as we were coming up because yeah. it was like, well, that's us. Right. Yeah. Um, it kills me that black people, and it goes a little bit different from what we're talking about, but has similarities to what we're having a discussion on. We tend to want to say all this unity, you know, we have to do black empowerment, yeah. uh, build black, uh, uh, spend black, support black, right? Yeah. Black businesses and all this kind of crazy shit. But we tend and we find ourselves not spending the way we could spend with black businesses the way we spend with white businesses. And I say that not in a sense of I do know white businesses, Asian business may have more to offer, but when the time we do come to spend, right, a Negro will make every single damn excuse about spending $10 for a product, right? Yeah. But we'll turn around in the high white designer, um, you know, uh, uh, department stores and go ahead and spend the number of $100 plus on whatever product it is and make no complaint about it at all. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It, it, it frustrates me because when you look at those shows, right, yeah. it shows me how far we've gone from what those shows were telling us, yeah. right, and speaking to us to do to now where we're at right now. We force ourselves to actually do things for each other, but it's easy for us to go out there and do things for other people and support other people. Yeah. That shit kills me. So what I got from in that time period of shows, which I think was important, which leads to some of that is that the idea of, I didn't go to HBCU, but the idea of going to one at that time period was normal to me because of school days, because of the Cosby show in a different world. Do the right thing. That time period of every, everything I looked at, what I was watching, everybody was going, you know, even like we had Martin wearing a, a, a grambling sweatshirt Bro, or wearing a, you know, that was a trend setting, Marketed like before social media, yeah, that was marketed. Everybody right there. was wearing HBCU sweatshirts, hats, and they look uh, good, yeah. And so, to me, the idea of you saying, Oh, okay, like my cousin when she graduated high school in, had her in California, she went down to Clark. That to me was a, it wasn't, Oh, you going all the way to Atlanta? It was, Oh, cool, like out of this list of schools, that just made sense because every you know, everything I kept seeing, the idea of doing business, uh, it's the same time period to where. Um, the movies I was watching were all predominantly black casted movies. So like, uh, like boomerang, mm-hmm. uh, a highly underrated movie, very underrated and, and a major component, like in the time period, uh, you know, sidebar, they're talking about him possibly coming back to stand up, trying mm-hmm. to work a deal out with them. But something Eddie Murphy took a lot of heat for is because the reviews kept roasting him because he had a movie that there was no white lead. Exactly. That it was a it was an all it black wasn't a cast. white love interest. Nothing. And even it was they were he was a marketing exec, the whole corporation, 
from from the top execs to the person who owned the business all the way to Chris Rock in the mailroom, it was all it was all black. Everybody's relationship, love interest, black. You know, um, David Allen Greer's parents come to visit, black. Like it was, he took heat because he made. They're trying to say that he made a a, a black movie. He was like, nah. Like if I make a movie, if if it's starring whomever and it's all execs and business and it's all white people, it's not a white movie. You know, I made a movie that, that does not require, you know, a, a white lead and require white, white romantic. But these are the type of things that I was watching growing up. But let's go into this. Okay. Speaking on that boomerang. Okay. What was really the difference between the boomerang movie and the coming to America movie that did have. In particular, two white guys that played a comedic value in it because they were in trading places with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, no way. What, what 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 would be the difference? The difference? Um, nothing to me. That was, I mean, there is there 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 is a coming difference. to America. I have to go through the story. Go, go uh, coming to America. Prince Akeem comes to America. Him and Simi. Because in reality, coming to America. Hindsight being, you know, 2020 yeah. with all the Wakanda Black Panther, yeah. we really know that this is really what we. Yeah, that's the original. Yeah, uh, Zamunda is the yeah, original yeah. Wakanda. Uh, yeah. uh, originated from. Yeah, right? yeah. Zamunda is um, the original Wakanda. Zamunda, when it was, yeah. it was laughed upon. It wasn't embraced. It was almost kind of like a joke. I mean, even um, McDowell's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But what. If that was an all-black cast, pretty much predominantly black yeah. cast, right? I can't think of anybody white. Black. The two, remember the two guys, the white guys who were played the homeless dudes. Yeah, but they were places. 30 seconds in the movie. But still. Yeah, yeah. All right? Boomerang. What do you feel the significant difference was? Why, why were they so turned off about Boomerang, but so turned up about coming to America? Because Boomerang was all executive, professional Ooh. black men and women who were all succeeding, who were Talk all excelling, them. who wow. were all in black relationships, yes. who did not have to get their check from, nor at any point in time in the movie did they have to adhere to white people. It was a very, very comedic but serious more serious than the coming to america that was yeah. laugh upon laughs upon laughs and the one other part that i put with boomerang is the only real interaction that had to do with white people in boomerang is when they went clothes shopping and that it was uh martin eddie and david allen greer they're in the they're looking at sports jackets yeah. and the dude comes up to him and he's like you know we we we, we have a no return policy and he's like, what, what, are we just going to wear it up and try to bring it back? Yeah. And dude's like, well, there's no cash in the store type stuff, whatever. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of reiterate that point. And when they're walking out, they didn't even spend money in the store because of his attitude. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Eddie kind of get like, jet, like made a little noise. And yeah. the dude jumped and said, see how he got scared and, mm -hmm. and walked off. That's the only real interaction with, with white people in the movie. But the difference of coming to America is uh, – Fictitious Zamunda. Yeah, it's rooted in more fairy taleish character based. Um, you know, this is the prince of a far yeah. off a fictional country. And most so of the times, Nichols would wouldn't have known that, and it was yeah, like yeah. So okay, everything about it you ha, can ha. lead to it's fictional. It's not real yeah. because it, it doesn't exist. Whereas Boomerang was like they were in New York City, all execs, business professional, living their day to day lives. It looked like a white movie played by black people. Exactly. And that's where uh, I make the differentiation when it comes to stuff like uh, I got a partner of mine does movies and I always joke with him. Uh, he was always the black guy in movies. And so he, he was the black guy in this, the black guy in that. And he does a TV show now where he's a guy who happens to be black. 
like the role he plays is, is not he's not the black guy on the show the role you can obviously tell was not if you look at it, it was, obviously it was probably not written for a black person he just happens to be you know a person who's black boomerang though it was represented for the culture the bare bones of the story is not a black movie a bunch of business execs. It's the dude who's he's well to do, good looking guy who all the women like. He's making his round till all of a sudden a woman comes in who's his male equivalent and she does him like he's been doing women. That's not a black thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and then the, the he get his heart broken and then he ends up falling for the one who was really down for him yeah. and then has a real relationship. That's not a quote unquote black movie. That's a movie starring black people. Yeah. And the in you know the influx of the culture and the nuance stuff that makes it speak to us a little bit more. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Eddie took a lot of heat for that movie. Well, and, and the simple fact is, um, here we are living in uh, what 2019, where winning a Grammy and wearing an Emmy is a big deal still for yeah. Negroes. I mean, I heard that um, when they see us was nominated for the most Emmy awards or whatever. Yeah. Um, for the great depiction of. The atrocity, horrific of, story of, of yeah, real life they, people, yeah. and I even tried to share it with some of my friends. They didn't want to watch it because I think it shocked them. Like this is how we've been treated. Like yeah, yeah this this is the truth, yeah. and it's this not forty years ago. No, yeah. this is very recent, yeah. and I think that we have to get away from this idea that being accepted in a culture that has not accepted us. Because we've been so innovative, we've been so different that we've never mirrored what they wanted us to mirror because of mostly a lot of the racism that we have approached is due to jealousy. You know what I'm saying? It's envy. It's um, being afraid of truly black people's greatness and our ability to be so resilient has just allowed us to sometimes accept what they've given us. And I think that these symbolic gestures of guess what? Because we feel bad, we're going to nominate you guys 12. And it's like a celebration. The Corey kid who got the most fucking uh, abuse out of the whole uh, five, you know, of course, he had an extraordinary performance. So he has best leading role or supporting. I don't know. But he's he's up for his Emmy, the the actor that played, um, you know, that role of, of, of Corey in the movie. But my thing is, I get tired of our inability to just resist from the temptation that is white people trying to give us a bone and just say, you know what? Thank you. But this Emmy, this Grammy, this thing that you continue to pull over my head, that's supposed to be my platform of, I finally made it. I'm successful now because you have granted me the due diligence to say, you know what? That was a hell of a performance or, or that was a hell of an album. You got it. When you look at Boomerang, why wasn't that acceptable? Why wasn't that a successful uh, movie about love, about black love? When we've watched all of the dumb, overplayed, um, overzealous white movies that were coming around that time, I, I, I can't remember how many love interests Tom Cruise had or, yeah. or Mel Gibson had. You know what I'm saying? And it was over. I mean, freaking uh, Michael Douglas had, right? Oh, he over, was running through. He was running through them. It's a redundant episode of of just the same shit we do, but we get uh, uh, thrown tomatoes at and they get exalted in Emmy Award winning 
Academy Award, uh, you know, Oscar Award uh, performances when it's looked upon us as, you know what, eh, that's not good enough. And I think that we as black people have to start realizing that their platforms are not for us. You remember there was a point in time that they didn't televise the Grammys. I don't remember. Well, yeah, there was a no, no. The, the Grammy Awards for hip hop. Oh, oh, yeah, was yeah, not yeah, televised, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And the artists that have won some of the Grammy Awards for hip hop are like, uh, huh? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they're like, like, uh, like uh, 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 right? They, they, they literally have stolen our culture. And I can't say stolen. I feel like we've given it up because I think that's what we do. We like to give it up. And that's yeah. something that we'll talk about when we talk about like like this gentrification thing. Because we want to talk about this, you know, 47% um, of Oakland's become homeless. But that's another conversation with that. But sticking to this point right here, we have to get out of the mindset that white is right, black is okay. And if we don't have white approval, we don't exist to be what we feel is the pinnacle of success. Yeah, what I would like to see more is that if we treated the Emmys and the Oscars the way we treat the NAACP and BET Awards. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, because reality of it is, is like it, it, you did, we sit there and say, and, and as, as a group, you know, I know there's some people like, now nah, this, that, as, as a collective, you know, the, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, all that stuff is the pinnacle of the profession. I get that. That that's how, for the dominant culture and society. That's what it is. We started our own awards to showcase and highlight our people because we had consistently been snubbed and disregarded and disrespected in those forums. So we have NAACP Image Awards. We have BET Awards. We 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 have all those things, and we don't even half the time our major stars don't even show up. Not at all. You know, there'll be the award show, a whole presentation of this, that. The only time you really consistently see somebody show up is a lifetime achievement award. You know, that's when you're on the back end of your career and you're just like happy to get the shine again. Yeah. And so. Oh, I got the call. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so we show up to those. I would like to see. To me, it's not even to say you don't have to care about winning a Grammy or care about. Because I think in any profession that you're giving your heart and soul to, to be acknowledged for doing it well. It has its place. Yeah, I mean. But the fact is that if we're going to say that is amazing and this is not even worth showing up, that's the problem. So I would like to see if there could be a reversal. Put some more love, put some respect on on, on an NAACP, BET award that, like, here's us championing us, you know, celebrating us. And then treat those the way that they've treated you. Yeah. You know, like, we, you know, we talk about, like, how, how Boomerang's place was, how it was. Um, disrespected with pretty much when it came to reviews and stuff. Another one which was almost that meant almost equal disrespect and did less financially was Harlem Nights. I was just about to say that, bro. For the same reason. Because these were black, well to do gangsters coming out of Harlem who were who it was uh Richard Pryor, Rev Fox, and all star cast. As well as folks that were on the come up in that movie. Oh, I mean, if you go Robin Harris, the rest in peace, Robin, Robin Harris. Harris, rest in peace, Charlie Murphy. Uh, they were both in that movie. 
you you take uh, go all throughout the, the just every scene. Uh, rest in peace, Red Fox. Rest in peace, Della Reese. Like if you just all the people who were who were throughout that movie. If you went off of just cast alone. And where they were in their careers, Tommy, talking about for Martin, you know, Arsenio Hall at the time period, like all these dudes just, at, I mean, there wasn't but two, three more people you could have put in that movie. Like between Harlem Nights and Boomerang was everybody in black comedy with the exception of Bill Cosby. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, realistically, right. it was right before Bernie. So, I mean, with the You're exception right. of, of, of like Bill Cosby, like everybody in, in both those movies for relatively the same reason, you know, a movie about uh, black gangsters coming out of out of Harlem and black love and black love who got the best of the white gangsters and the best of the crooked white police officers who then went on to nobody died. Nobody went to jail. They prospered and were able to move on and beat the game, met with the same criticism and, and, and review disrespect. You know, that should tell you a lot. Had it ended like life where they went to prison, probably better reviews. Yeah, probably. Right. Had one of Eddie's girlfriends been blonde hair and blue eyed and boomerang. Probably different, or had Robin Givens character, but or had the boss been been something else, or something that would have had to put us in a subservient position, then it would be more widely accepted. And I think that's very telling uh, of, of how we move. Well, I think that because a lot of us take notes into what you know, white media says or has to say and criticizes us in that way. Uh, I think that we spend our time really unfortunately deciding about what we're going to support by the effect of what they've dictated to us yeah. right you know okay well that's not good um i guess that ain't good because that white person said it i mean it's just true that our culture has adopted if it ain't white it ain't right if it if it's too dark uh you might need to sit there and uh, take some time to think about it for a second. Well, and that's why I think that, and even kind of going to touch on what you talk about like on the gentrification side, is that growing up in an era where going to a predominantly black college was the norm, yeah. uh, watching TV and programs where uh, whenever somebody dated interracially, it was the joke of the episode. Like it was like you were supposed to be with, with if you're a black woman, you're supposed to be with a black guy. Now it's the man, norm. Like it was the... You know, like any of those things we're, we're seeing different. So the idea of living in a community that were, you know, predominantly black was normal. Black businesses, normal. normal. Dating, you know, black marriages and family, normal. Going to a HBCU, normal. Uh, black business, all this stuff was normal. So then once you start to shift away from what was normal that we saw regularly, then it became foreign. And then that starts to trade place into the workplace. Because when you're in the era growing up of... Every day, everybody you see on TV looks like you, dates people who look like you, does business with people who looks like you. When you go out into life, you're naturally going to follow suit. Well, then when you don't see that anymore, then the same thing follows. Yeah. So now we have places to where we, we don't do business with one, one another like we used no, to. not at all. We, the idea of going to a HBCU gets a side eye. The, the idea of, of the fact that there has to be a campaign to work and build and grow with each other is ridiculous, you know? And so then we start looking at the results. Well, what does a community look like that does not support itself? Mm. What is it? What is the educational systems look like when they're not supported by the people who went there or, or who they feel like it was designed for? You know, we have all these great phenomenal, uh, 
engineers and athletes and entertainers or whatever, some of them who went to HBCUs who do not give back to them. Yeah. You know, we have some who didn't go to them, but don't see the need to support them. Mm-hmm. We've got people who live in the community who don't think it's important to spend money within the community. People who live in the community don't think it's important to buy it and, and, and to be able to sustain the community. So then you have things like gentrification yeah. where you live somewhere, but you don't own where you live. And then it is the the economy of the area is not people who look like you. Mm-hmm. You know, you go into any predominantly black area. You don't call them black communities. It's just areas that have, have predominantly black because the ownership of the businesses, ownerships of the real estate, ownership of, of you know, the equity. None of it is owned by black people. So not it's not a black community. It's just a community that's got black people in it. Yeah. And I, and I think that we like. Let's just stay there just for a second. Yeah. Here's what here what we're saying, Negro. Yeah. We occupy. I can't call it a black community, right? So yeah. we, we occupy. That's all it is. The, the occupation means that we're there, but nothing around us speaks volumes to us. We don't control, nor do we dictate, though we do we have stock in, you know, these quote unquote places that we live in. And I think yeah. that becomes the biggest issue where we can get gentrified because it's one thing to call a black community uh, a community and you have all things black aside to a church. I don't care about the six churches that are within the black community. I care about that that corner store is owned black. I care about is that gas station is owned black. I care about if that medical center, if it is one, is predominantly, if it not owned, but run black. Yeah. And these things aren't happening. Yeah. So one thing that, that a big difference to, to recognize is, is that it's not a black restaurant because black people eat there. Nah. It's not a black hotel because black people rent rooms and black people work there. Yeah, it's a it's a quote unquote black hotel because the owner of the hotel is black. It's a black restaurant because the owner of the restaurant is black. Just because two of the floors are rented out by black people this weekend. That does not make the Hilton a black hotel. Dumbest thing that you ever heard. But black people said was Bill Clinton was the first black president because he smoked weed. He smoked. He smoked weed, played jazz and And cheated on his wife. And got hit. And that's supposed to that's supposed to be quote unquote black. Exactly. Right. That type of BS. (laughs) That's that. that shows you where what volume we're at of, of the ignorance and the mentality that we have to change when we think like that. But yeah. I think the myth has to be clear. Just as when I was on Fox 40 News locally uh, this past week and they were asking me about how I felt about Donald Trump trying to make the cuts with um, the SNAP program, which is called the food stamp program with Medi-Cal and all that other stuff that comes into it, housing, you know, Section 8. I said, well, you know, let's get the myth cleared. Black and Hispanic aren't going to be the ones truly affected in a majority. We're not the primary on that. The primary is white America. Yeah. And that's a myth. So as we cleared that myth to say, well, white folk will be looking at the president sideways, not really black folk and Hispanic. Let's clear the myth on what a black community is. A black community is a community that is ingrained with things surrounded and operated by them control. Yeah. And we don't have that. We don't have that in the abundance that we've had before. And Sacramento, I don't think we have anything like that. But we do have black occupants in a community that they consider what? Black. Yeah. 
we have areas that are just yeah i think the best word used occupied by black people if you were to call it a black community it needs to be rooted in culture and commerce and we're not talking about just churches yeah because so i say <laughs> culture and commerce Break that down for that, that if you go to the population, it is of this. Okay. And this is what the group of the people who sit there are. And their culture is represented in said area. And the commerce of said area is represented by those people. Meaning the people who own the, the, the properties, the property taxpayers of those areas, mm. the ones who occupy businesses and, and bring uh, commerce through that funds the area. Own a majority of the housing in that yes. area. And then where the money is spent is spent within the area. That's when you start talking about a community. If you go to Chinatown, where the home Chinatown anywhere in America, and where the, the, the pieces the people who live there own the places where they live, the businesses that are there are owned by the people who live there, and the commerce that is what they sell, what they do, their product, is then bought and frequented by the people who live there, and the money that is taken, that is earned from that commerce, is then spent in the same place. That's when you talk about a community. Yes, sir. So we live here. We own where we live. We have businesses here. It is frequented by the people who live here. The money that is generated from the businesses, which is frequented by the people who live here, is then spent in the area that we all live here. That is a community. So if you've got people who who have businesses where you are, but don't live where you are. They are not a part of the, that, that. That is not the concepts of the construct of your community, because we have areas that are predominantly black where the homes are owned by Caucasian, Asians, Middle Easterns, whatever. The businesses in that area are run and owned by Caucasians, Middle Easterns, um, Asians, whatever. But the money that is generated in those areas is spent elsewhere. Mm. The, the guy, the Middle Eastern gentleman who owns the corner store, the Asian guy who owns the gas station, the white guy who owns the diner, they don't live there. Mm. So you come in and spend your money in their business. They take that money and go back to where they live. Mm. And then that's where their money is generated. That's where their homes are bought. That's where they pay for their kids to go to school. That's where they do all that stuff in their community. You just occupy space. That's it. You are ho- you are. You were an extended stay in this hotel. And then when they decide, we up in the rate, or up in the rate, selling a hotel, and we're gentrifying and doing whatever we do, then that's just what happens. And I think that roll up your cotton bounce when you don't have the control that you need that's uh, necessary, you know, in, in all communities. I think that you will continue to have this happening in every state in America because when you look at America within itself, uh, the migration of the, the Chinese Americans, right? Yeah. Uh, or the Chinese immigrants, that, you know, and making Chinese Americans as their, their offsprings. They've been able to come to each city because I've traveled a lot. And one thing I found was MLK looked a certain way. Yeah. And that was hood. That was uh, destitute. Chris Rock, Joe. Uh, MLK, uh, anywhere in America. Martin Luther King. It was ghetto, yeah. right? And, um, and, and th- th- there was. No foundation of what MLK represented looks like that in pretty much any uh, 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 city in the United States. Yeah. If there is one, please someone tell me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Maybe there's one Comment. in North Carolina. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then when you talk about economic flow, when you talk about a resistance to uh, outside culture influence, yeah. you look at Chinatowns and every city in America set up. 
here we have um, our, our little Saigon, right? And then we have other pockets in the Freeport area here in Sacramento. But everywhere in the United States, they've set their economics, they've set their value, they've set their culture, they've set their family, they've set their lineage here in a place where it looks familiar when the immigrants or, uh, you know, you got to send the grandchild to get some of their their uh, roots. Yeah. <laughs> they've made it to where the elder as well as the youth can all be uh, uh, connected where they have, uh, you know, their own traveling traveling agencies to be able to bring commerce back and forth, folks back and That's forth. The culture, the, with the culture commerce. has been set up and designed to not only have the food, but also to be able to operate in such a way that's so powerful that their economic stays in this corridor. Yeah, we don't have that. No, we don't. The idea of and just using Asians, they're not the only ones, but they're a, a pretty universal example is that they've got a template. And even something as simple as, OK, get there, open up a, a, a Chinese food restaurant. Chinese food restaurants are pretty much universal anywhere you go. You can make the argument that maybe this one's a little oilier or this MSG is a little higher in this one. But by and large, it, it's pretty you could take the Pepsi challenge with most Chinese restaurants and, it, and it's going to be a coin toss. Uh, but what they have done is that, you know, all the noodles come from an Asian distributor. Uh, Soy sauce packets, Asian distributor. Uh, Chopsticks, Asian distributor. Fortune cookies, Asian distributor. Wow. Like they keep it so in-house. Even to the place, I've been some places to where uh, Chinese run businesses, they take issue with hiring a Vietnamese person. Like it's not even about like Asian. It's like, no, we are Chinese and we're employing Chinese. Like we're keeping it unless that Vietnamese person speaks China Chinese because that's what we're going to be speaking here. We're dealing with English when we're dealing with English speaking customers. But 80 percent of the time we're keeping the culture intact and we're taking this because it's a cash cow and we're going to open up the dry cleaner, mm. which is another go to which. And then we're going to open up. We're going to do the nail salon, which is another go to. Mm. It's not coincidence that you see the restaurants next to the dry cleaner, next to the nail salon in Chinatown everywhere because it is a successful template. Wow. That they duplicate everywhere they go, because as long as it that makes money, be, that, should, that should be owned by us. But yeah, we'll, why deviate from the formula if it's working? And then you use that. You put the church in there. You find a church. This is the center of praise. Like this is where we go. We've got a church, and we got a church. These businesses, and we start buying up the homes. And you've got your place where you can pray. Then you get your school. You've got your place that creates commerce. You keep your community, your culture intact. Keep it tight and just expand and duplicate. Yeah. And it's the same formula across the country. These are not Brooklyn Chinese, Cleveland Chinese, Detroit Chinese, Chinese. Houston Chinese, Sacramento Chinese. Chinese, Seattle Chinese. You go to Chinatown anywhere in America is the exact same blueprint. Like, <laughs> like it, 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 it's not crazy. It's not, you know, it's not only cra not crazy. It isn't as, as difficult as we, you know, think it to be. I talked to a friend and we shared some conversation about. It's almost like with black people, in order for you to get the support, there has to be some kind of lined ideology. Right. Yes. And I think like it's. Well, let's look at the church because I think the church is and forgive me my Christian brothers and sisters who may be listening I feel like the church has probably been one of the biggest uh, components to us not 
rising from the ashes aside to so many other things. But I say that in a sense of we're so busy trying to pray ourselves or pay ourselves into heaven. Right. Okay. When I say praying Sunday, pray and then we're tied in. Boom. Okay. And we don't look at anything outside that. I say this because I say when I talk about supporting an ideology, it's almost as if for those Bible toters who run around here saying the white Jesus with blue eyes has saved us. You have them not understanding that supporting black businesses aside to supporting home church is more uh, a revolutionary and would be what Jesus wanted them to do. Because when you have folks that look at folks and will want to know what your faith is before they go ahead and buy something from you, yeah, it becomes a big issue. I say that because... Which is crazy. We, we, I say that because we have um, at least about eight to ten different black churches. And, of course, where I have the Voice of the Youth programming, where I have my thrift store and, you know, the, the incubator. Florence Square, 2251 and 2245 Florence Road. And every Sunday we're open. Yeah. And all those churches come out. They know there's a thrift store there. They don't ever come by. They don't come by for a conversation. They don't come by to just, you know, see what we got going on. Yeah. It's like they go into their little community space and they get the hell up out of here. What I'm saying is church has become so unfortunately attached to they creating their own community and forgetting the outside and yeah. i've only seen a few shots out to my brother pastor les simmons who um has understood with his congregation that the church is the community not the community is the church get what i'm talking about okay. where they understand the 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 residue of black economics is an important factor for us to move it's an important factor for somebody to come actually walk into your church to hear that you talking some of this real shit not talking about some biblical fairy tale about if we just pray and just eat our uh, our, our, our 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 cereal and drink some uh the blood of jesus <laughs> we'll get into heaven right yeah it becomes a thing to where Knowing that your brother on the outside, whether he believes in this same sanctuary that you believe in, it's just as important as my brother and sister to be able to have their basic essentials than just forcing them to say, well, before I can help you with your essentials, you got to come to church every Sunday. Yeah. And, and this is like my thing, which I maybe it's just the way that I, I, I see it and approach it, which I never understood. If you're going to say that the, the church is the center, the end all be all. That, that this is what it is uh, and all the money that's generated billions the, the, the church building fund you billions. know like uh, if that's the case then if you sat there and said this is the uh, paradise tabernacle AME of Mount Zion whatever uh, restaurant this is the 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 you know the the whatever 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 uh, dry cleaner if you're going to sit there and say all the money generated is going to go into the church, fine. And then the church opens up the restaurant. The church opens up a dry cleaning. The church opens up. If you're going to say that the church is the basis and you want to do business, then open up the businesses even under the church. <laughs> I don't care if it Chick-fil-A lets you know. They they stay holding the Bible. Chick <laughs> like Chick-fil-A stay on it. They don't even open on Sunday. Like you can't even get a chicken the, the, to the chagrin of a lot of people. Yeah, can't even get a chicken sandwich on Sunday. And so 
if you wanted to say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do, we're going to keep it all in-house. And I guarantee you they're not hiring people based on religious beliefs. But that's what I'm saying. No. And so, just can't, can't <laughs> right, wait, 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 hold on. Are you a Baptist? That's just the final question before you get it. Are you a Baptist? Chick-fil-A's got culture. They have a very ingrained culture. The weed, they don't necessarily care who you pray to, but when you're on the clock, this is how we do it over here. You can go home and pray whoever you want to, but when you show up in this building, you're going to act accordingly. But if the churches, if we're going to sit there and say we're going to put all our money in the churches and we're going to have six churches in a six-mile radius, then all the money that's generated from six churches in a six-mile radius should own up all the community yep. sto- centers, the, the a grocery store, yep. diners, yep. Uh, everything that, that the community as a whole should need. I don't care if I need to go get my dry cleaning done from the... the uh, Episcopalian dry cleaner. No, I don't care. No, I just need to get my shirts pressed. No. You know, I don't care if I want to go through a drive-through and the owner of it happens to be this is the Baptist missionary chicken spot. No, fine. You know, this is the 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 the, the vegan whatever 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 uh, Protestant. So fine, I don't care. But if you're going to say that, but in order, if we're going to build these communities and we're to say that the church is the only staple that we're going to support, then there needs to be we're in trouble. Uh, you know, there needs to be a lot of things that you stated out, but we're in big trouble because once upon a time, the church was the in all be all, right? Yeah. The pastor was the lawyer. He was the, um, the, 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 the marriage counselor. You know, he was a financial advisor. Yeah. He was the big brother. He was a father. He was the mentor. He was everything and anything. Now that shit's out the he door. pastor. He's just pastor, reverend, and he look a lot like me because we've now seen the flaws. The idea that we keep on moving, we are continuously running the same game plan year in and year out. Like, for instance, when the Phoenix Suns kept on trying to beat the San Antonio Spurs, right? Okay. They eventually was like, well, it ain't the players. It's got to be what? The coaches, the culture, the, 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 yeah. Now, the same coach has moved to Houston, right? Yeah. And now. One game away from the finals appearance. (laughs) Now, and you know, things happen, but he now has another superstar with his other superstar. What do you think is going to end up happening if they don't get to the finals of the Western Conference or to the finals? And why is that? Because the system that he has in place is not successful. So why in the hell (laughs) do we as black people see this continuous system that we continue to buy into, whether it's the white system or the black way of navigating in the white system, the how to do it the black way in the white system so you don't get lynched, so you don't get assassinated, so you just kind of just get through and hopefully you, you, you make it and hopefully they accept you and you can live a good life. Why do we continuously look at this same system and not just say, look at this playbook and throw it away and just go ahead and just change up okay. coaches and everything else? So so all this tying together. So if you go to the to the 90s where the playbook was, uh, we, were, we were with each other and you saw constant imagery, constant examples of coming together. And you saw a prosperity amongst black people in the 90s where we had entrepreneurship, we had business building, we had there were a lot of black millionaires that were coming out of that time period in groundbreaking fields that had not existed previously. Uh, that was the template that was working. That we've been, same way I said about how uh, Chinatown, anywhere in America, this is the template that's working, so they just keep duplicating it. 
uh, we have a broken template that we just keep duplicating. <laughs> like we, this, this is this idea of not buying up where we live, of not supporting local businesses, Crazy. of not uh, working together and building together. It is a proven failing system. Yes, it is a proven failing template. Like there, at this point now, we've got more than enough data in. Like <laughs> we, 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 the jury's done deliberating. We have, we have come to find across the board that this is a non-successful way of doing things. And we just continue in anywhere America to keep duplicating this flawed template. And I think part of what we got to get into is, like I said, going back to, what we started at the top is, is that the boomerangs about showcasing the working together. Showcasing the black excellence, showcasing the success in, in, in the coming together and showing models of possibility that shows where it works and highlighting that because we, we we don't, you know, and, and we don't have to do something. No, I, I, and I think, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you know, and, I, and I think that what you're saying is, is, is correct because we're going to have to do something. And I think that with some of the things that we're doing. In a preference of showing an example, we hired 26 young black youth, right? Yeah. And probably have another, um, you know, five in the fold of doing other, uh, you know, businesses because, of course, we created the summer programs and summer nights of impact, right? And and this is our second year of doing it. And this time, you know, we wasn't getting any um, funding from any large of uh, scale uh, uh, entity. It's kind of like grassroots, really, really, and. We're also finding out with grassroots, people don't really support grassroots like they want to say. Yeah. So so now when I'm going to go get my money from these government entities that say we got some money for you, I'm going to look at all these people that are going to try to say, Barry, that's not revolutionary. I'm going to say, well, when I had the program and I put the monies on the back of me and my team and we had to scrape to figure out how we're going to pay 26 youth. Yeah. At the end of the summer, right, which is going to be equivalent to almost twenty thousand dollars, depending on the hours that they make, right? Yeah. Where were you to help us fund that? They were tithing. You get what I'm saying? So that that becomes <laughs> yeah. a bigger yeah. issue. Yeah. Don't tell me about what we should do. So we're doing it. We've created something not only for our youth but for the community. Yeah. For two years in a row. We've hired. So we went from having 15 young people that we hired, 15 to 17 young people we hired last year, to now 26 plus. Yeah. And, and here's here's the goal like with, with, with and why the example is important and, and going along with what you're saying is that and for people who aren't quite getting that, oh, it's a summer job or it's whatever. No, what it is is that you have a, a younger generation who in their brain thinks they can go to another black person for opportunity. Because when that's not the case, when it's, you know, hey, I need you. Can you listen to this? Can you do this? Well, can, can you do anything for me? Can you put me in a position? You say, don't sell drugs. Don't get involved in this. Don't start doing that. Well, good, well can you help me out with an alternative? No. Oh, OK. Well, I, I got to do what I got to do. then. And then these are young people who are growing up working alongside people who look like them. So what it becomes is that's a norm. It's okay. Well, I got an opportunity from somebody who looks like he could be my uncle or my dad or, or my older brother. And I'm working alongside people who look like me for a community that looks like me. Mm -hmm. This becomes ingrained in my brain as a thing to do. 
It's not some foreign thing that I've never seen before. It becomes the norm, much like watching people who look like you go to college when you're in the eighth grade yeah. or looking at people who are successful, who look like you when you're 13 or 14. These people, these young people now who are in their high school years, these formative years still, these are things that they're having and experiencing. So now when they go out into the world, it's, oh, no, I can't work with my people. Not only that, I, you know, what I mean, not only that. I can only work with my people. I'm learning these aggressive job skills at an earlier age so I can be on tout with other people. I'm ahead of the as curve. As I, I go ahead and I create my resume because you got to remember the rare thing that we're doing, especially on this last round, because the first round we did it last summer, we had 16 Our probably our, 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 our youngest person was probably 16. Okay. Right. Everybody was 16, 17, 18. We had some 20 year olds. Right. We literally have 14 year olds working. No. 14 year olds, 15 year olds working. First time they've ever worked. Like, you know, and in this core of young people, a lot of them, so, you know, we have a few returners coming back, I suppose, some from college and some from our, our last program. Not only are they getting job skills that are necessary for them to to navigate and move, we're training them to be bosses. You know, we're not training them to be workers. Yeah. We're giving them this idea of this is how you move if be you want to be a boss. And be accountable. We're giving them boss plays. It's not worker play. It's not this is how you were going to be an employee. We are giving you boss mode. Not not no other thing because as we do our youth development program and our team building pieces, which are very important, yeah. we're treating these kids as much as Google would treat their employees by giving them little initiatives, a uh, gift card here, you know, if yeah. they do something correctly, we're incentives rewarding them, some incentives, hats, these things that they do. We're taking the little bit of the budget that we have and making sure we're having this job be based not only on performance, but as well as you're feeling this camaraderie, this familyhood. So if you ain't getting it at home, you're getting it over here. Okay, and and, and this is something very important, which is going with what you're saying, because I, I think that this is an important piece. That they they got to make sure they get. I was talking with somebody, and and I got some very good information. I got just good game. I think you learn every day about like the breakdown economically for businesses. So like if you work, if you make thirty thirty five thousand dollars a year, mm -hmm. you're getting paid for the job that you work. Yeah. So if, if you do clerical work and you make 32 grand a year, you're getting paid for clerical work. That's that's your paycheck. That's it. Don't think you deserve more. Don't think that you that because the job market changes or rent goes up or whatever, whatever. You're not entitled to more. If you make less than 30 or you that 30 less than thirty five thousand dollars a year, you're getting paid directly A to B for your time. If you make 40, 50, 60 thousand dollars a year, you're getting paid for your ability to manage someone else. If you make sixty thousand a year, sixty-five thousand dollars a year, there is somebody under you, at least one or two people who your job is to make sure something is done. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting there saying, "Well, you know, well, how much responsibility do I have? Am I responsible for anybody else?" No, then that's why you're getting paid what you make. Mm -hmm. If you're making fifty, sixty, sixty-five thousand dollars a year, you can guarantee there's at least one or two people that have to report to you, or that it is your job to oversee that something is done. Yeah. If you make over a hundred thousand dollars a year, anything when you get over six figures, that means at some point in time when things don't go right, the buck stops with you. Trust me. So when you make $30,000 a year, if a, if you work at McDonald's and you want fries, if enough potatoes weren't ordered, that does not hit your desk. Nah. Because your job, you're getting paid to cook fries. 
if you make if you if you make hundred thousand dollars a year and your store is running out of potatoes, you are gone. Yeah. Because the buck stopped with you. And so for what these kids are learning, and which I've started to see and talking to them and seeing how they're operating, they're learning how to not only do their job, the the A to B, the thirty thousand, but they're also some of the older ones are learning how to delegate to the ones beneath them. Boss. And they're learning how that shifts them into the management where they Boss. can oversee. And then you're seeing even the older ones who are when they direct they're learning the accountability. So they're in a position that when they're given responsibility and an income accordingly, they can handle it because they're knowing the moves that they make, it's hitting their desk. Boss. They're learning the tools that which will put them out in that position to where they're not making twenty thousand a year just on Fridays. Boss. They're learning things at 14 15 16 that will put them in a position of management and then potential ownership and these are traits that they're learning at a young age which will put them in a much better position which is why programs like this need to be supported and when negroes don't support it and support fraudulent characters fraudulent behavior and shit that just goes with the norm it becomes stagnant and we continue to run the same systematic playbook that has gotten us nowhere it has gotten us nowhere because they don't respect the fact that we don't have a fighter mentality we have a flight mentality we have a uh, i'm going to be passive mentality yeah. we should have a takeover and a simple fact i want folks to understand something 26 black youth that ain't saying that I ain't gonna hire no Asian or Latino or whatever. But my whole purpose was to hire 26 black youth. So our team said, uh, we don't care who comes inside, they're gonna see black kids working. Now think about that. That's 26 from one program. How many programs are currently running in the city of Sacramento during the summer? Just a round number. Probably maybe. Half dozen, maybe? Yeah, half dozen. So you can instantly put 125. Young black kids to work right now. Yes, sir. If everybody got on the same mentality, and somebody yep. and some folks got much deeper budgets. Oh, definitely. So they, that number could be substantially. Well, we, we, like, like literally, we're like we're creating something out of nothing. You know what I mean? In in a way that it's coming out of our own pockets with a few maneuvers that we are able to to create to raise, but to run a program just like this, it surfaces close to a hundred thousand plus. So as we talk about these things, if we was going to tie that in together, I think it's time that we shine things on over to a Barry Axius final word. Oh, man. Well, here's the final word, man. The final word is this. As we look at 47 percent of Oakland's population has risen into be in poverty, we've got to look at what our future looks like for our young people. And our future looks like our young people is this. Very bleak. If we as black people don't start doing something and the doing something is the Summer Nights of Impact program, which is one program of many programs in the summer that is focusing not only just on community, but it's also focused on employing and empowering our young people. When we say employing, we want to make sure our young people have the skills to be employed by others that look like us and others that don't. As well as empowering, we want to be able to give those skills, leadership skills, advocacy skills, um, social skills, right? Those things that no longer are being taught, no longer are being um, sought out in, a, in the classrooms or in the household. We want to condition ourselves to realize that our young people are sponges. And if we get them right now properly and give them the antidote of success, the antidote of being a boss and giving a bigger lens with with incentives, with care, with love, with also truth, 
I think that we're going to have a better outcome because if we don't, as a society, look at what's going on and think that we have the excuse to say that it's not going to be one of us. Every day I wake up, I say to myself, I do not want to be that person that's going in the garbage looking for trash, looking for food. I can never knock a person that's homeless, but it saddens me that we have a society that looks at the problem of the homeless as a problem of those individuals that are homeless, when in reality, the problem of the homeless is a problem in of American greed and the fact that we do not care about those who can't keep up with the constant tidal wave and curveballs of life. No one deserves not to have a place to live, food and clothing and a, 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 a good, decent life. No one deserves that. So I will say this as I touch. Think about it, family. It could be us. And we need to start learning how to support each other better and building in a different kind of system. Because these are things that we need to make sure we're getting on top of and supporting our communities and being there for us. For not only us who are here right now, but for those of us who are coming behind us. For more conversation like this, for riveting stimulation and, and proper information, where can folks find you online, sir? Barry Axius on um, Instagram, Barry Axius uh, Facebook, Barry Axius Twitter. And make sure you go to Hidden Gems Thrift Store, 2245 Florin Road, Suite 12, as well as BlackBlueprintsWithAZ.com. I'm Jermaine Morris on Facebook. Every other social media platform is at jmorrisceo. It's been a Say Something podcast. And until next show, yes, sir. we'll holler at you later. Yeah.